This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Morning, Mill City. Hey, let me ask real quick. Is anyone else thankful that it's the second Sunday of January and we haven't had like some crazy winter monsoon come in and sweep us away? I, I don't know what it means for snow in April, um, but it's, we've got time to get there, I guess. Um, if you were here last week, you'd remember we talked about making the most of this season. Uh, Chris preached about uh, the new year and that it can be a time uh, that's special to reflect and um, to make awesome long-term goals, form better habits, experience uh, deeper intimacy with God, um, specifically in regard to reading the Bible and, and growing that discipline over a lifetime. And I know many people in this room have committed to and started Bible reading plans to consistently read the Bible throughout 2019. And I bring it up because in 2018, I followed a five-day reading plan, which I really enjoyed. And each month uh, was regimented, I was regimented to cover a chunk of scripture. Um, and so when I got to December, I was reading from the book of Revelation every day, which is the last book of the Bible. And I didn't know what to expect because this was my first time reading every word of the Bible. And I've heard uh, mixed excitement on Revelation. <laughs> and so I was reading, minding my own business, and then I came across Revelation 2. And I just want to tell you from the outset, the book, the book of Revelation is great, but Revelation 2 really did a number on me, and it made me uh, think deeply and reflect and presented me with a heart test, um, words from Jesus that I had never heard him say before, and I knew I had to share it at the beginning of our new year. So in case you're wondering, how in the world are we studying from Revelation this morning? This is how. It wasn't random. I didn't lose a bet or something. <laughs> These are words from Jesus um, that he spoke to a, a familiar church rescue them 2,000 years ago, and I believe his words are exactly the words we should be hearing at the new year. So you can open with me to Revelation 2 um, to give you super fast context here. This is Jesus speaking to and instructing the Ephesian church uh, some decades after his death and resurrection, and all these words are being penned through Jesus' disciple John. So as we pick up in verse 1 here, uh, you'll hear Jesus instructing John what to write. And this is what he says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work, the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. I really love this passage. We're, we're going to ask four critical uh, questions this morning, four heart checks 
to begin the new year. And the first one we'll look at has to, has to do with the way Jesus is addressing his audience. Uh, look at verse 1 with me. Jesus, he begins by identifying his listeners, and he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And at first glance, that seems like, in fact, not a lot of listeners, uh, just one. What does that mean, to the angel of the church? Because initially, it, it seems like he could be singling someone or something out, uh, but it's a consensus that fundamentally the angel of the church is a personification of the church in Ephesus. It was a way of sending a message to the whole church that ultimately the net effect of their personalities, their presences, their positions and actions, all of those things would be responsible for the health and the ailments of the overall church. And that brings us to our first heart check this morning. You'll find it on your guide. Will you be a functioning church member? Will you be a functioning church member? So remember, Jesus, is a, he's addressing the identity of the whole church. And there's a call here for them to work together to repent from basing their identity on certain decent works, right? Verse 2 mentions doctrinal integrity, patience, the rejection of certain evil, but doing those things in lieu of keeping their identity firmly grounded in Christ's love. And if they have any shot at this, in reforming the church's identity and character, they need each other to do it. And I really want to I, I place emphasis on this today for the sake of understanding the rest of the passage and for setting up the new year. What does the Bible say about being a church member? And maybe we have our, our own ideas from previous church experiences or things we've seen on TV, um, organizations we've been a part of, whatever the reason may be. But unlike a club membership, which is so useful and common for organizations all around the world where you, know, you pay a fee and expect all sorts of entitlements and rights back, and you make, make demands, uh, club membership is not the most helpful way to view membership, though when it comes to God's church. Because the world sees membership as being part of an organization, and God sees church membership as being part of an organism. You see the difference there? The world sees being a member as being part of an organization, and the Bible says being a church member is more like being part of an organism. It's stunning. Like We, we don't have time to go too deep, but you'll, not, you'll notice a reference in your guides to go back and read 1 Corinthians 12. But to summarize it, the, the New Testament uses the word member exclusively to compare the people within a church to the parts of a human body. Uh, all, all but one case, member is used like this. And the head of the body being the most important, that's Christ's role in any church. So the pastor, the elder, a donor, financial partner, these are not the head of the body. Christ is. And everyone else ultimately submits and serves under Christ's headship. And so a well-structured biblical church, while it needs leadership, no doubt, isn't being solely held up by formal pastors and deaconesses and other leaders. It's bigger than that. Everyone has a part to play. And because of that, as people come and go, while the church definitely collectively hurts to see those people depart, the church will not fall apart because roles and relationships and responsibilities were spread across the entire church body. Which brings us to our first subpoint: Recognize that you are uniquely necessary. 
You are uniquely necessary. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that being part of a church body is, is even bigger than your interests and your intentions. Though those are, those are important to consult. But being part of a church body is God's design for you as a Christian. Scripture says he's placing you and he's appointing you within your church. God is, he's not passive in this. God is active in equipping us with each other. And saying, saying you're uniquely necessary, again, is not to say that the church would fall apart without you. But there's utility that you uniquely bring to any church body you're a part of, that you commit to. If you're a Christian, for instance, this morning, and you're committed to Mill City Church, then there are unique personalities that you expand us, color us with. There are talents you'll uniquely have to offer, things that you'll, unique, you'll uniquely pray about, and lost people you can uniquely reach, married Christians and single Christians, adults, students, and children you can uniquely counsel and advise. And you are designed, in fact, to reap all the same benefits in the same ways from the body. And point being this, God has appointed you to live where you are and to regularly attend where you choose so that you can become grafted into that local body. If you're a believer this morning and this is your church, you have a purpose here. So one, you're uniquely necessary. Two, recognize you have a duty to carry out. You have a duty to carry out. So if you're truly unique, which you are, then there are things for you to do here. Effort that can create or redouble activity within the church. And this church in Ephesus understood that. Paul had told them in Ephesians 2.10 that God had prepared good works for them. He said, we are, for we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so this goes for us too. And unfortunately, if, if we find ourselves sitting back and just kind of hanging back, then the prayers and the skill sets, the gifts, the relationships that we would otherwise uniquely engage in go untapped. And we all, we all know, for instance, how unhelpful it is for your foot to fall asleep or for your arm to like just kind of spasm out of control. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to, point being, we don't want to misapply or fail to apply uh, energy to our duties or, or I think we risk metaphorically dragging each other around or flailing and elbowing each other in the face, which isn't helpful. <laughs> We need each other to progress towards the same ultimate goal of grounding ourselves and grounding our church identity in Christ. And so, Christian, you have a God-appointed, spirit-empowered capacity to work out in your church. And God wants all of us to nourish and uphold the identity, the angel of our church. So will you be a functioning church member? Okay. All right, next point on the guide. Uh, another hard check that I believe this passage asks is, uh, will you revere Jesus? Will you revere Jesus? I think you get a sense in this passage for just how in control and mighty and justly authoritative Jesus is. Even with some of the imagery used, for instance, in verse 1, it says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, the seven stars are the, are the, seven, the seven different uh, churches that appear in chapters 2 and 3. And uh, one of them, of course, being the church in Ephesus. 
And this passage says he's holding them. He's holding this church in his hand. And that involves holding them accountable, which is the next sub-point. Will you revere Jesus knowing he holds our lives accountable? He holds our lives accountable. The fact of the matter is that while Jesus saved us and keeps us, for those who have called on his name for forgiveness of sins, he's still examining us. He's evaluating our actions. Verse 2, he says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Right? You test those who make false claims. I think this is an example of him evaluating reasonably obedient behavior. But on the other hand, no pun intended, Jesus brings up in verse 4, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And this is the point. Jesus is holding us accountable down to the priorities of our lives. He's evaluating every detail and every ambition. And so when he says to a church, I have this against you, you've abandoned something which is of first importance, and I'm calling you to turn from that and reprioritize, then we should respond to that call, right? Because he's not, he's not just trying to torment us with responsibility. Like he's bringing it up because he knows and wants what's best for you. And keep, it, keep in mind, his name is on the line too. Like we will give an account to him one day for everything we thought and did. And so as long as we have a record in scripture of things that matter to him, let's make sure that in Christ, our lives are congruent with those things. So will you revere him knowing he holds our lives accountable? Second, will you revere him knowing he seals our fate? Will you revere him knowing he seals our fate? So again, in verse 1, we see that, uh, quote, Jesus walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now that's a reference that goes all the way, all the way back to the Old Testament, right? The lampstand, the lampstand gave light where there was only darkness, and this illustration is expanded uh, when Scripture says that Jesus was the light of the world, shining truth into a dark reality. And now for those who have come to know him, we are conduits of that light, right? His, his light of truth to the world. And so the golden lampstand represents the status before Jesus has redeemed people, approval from him as ambassadors of his gospel. And he says in verse 5, If you don't love as I'm instructing, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I don't fully know what that means. Like maybe he's saying that refusing to turn away from cold lovelessness or self-righteous hate is going to have really terrible ramifications in your life. Or that you're short-changing some future eternal treasures. Or that you're going to be ineffective as a light in the world. He could be pointing out that if the pattern of your life is doing everything except that which is loving, and you never show a repentant heart, then maybe you might have never been a Christian to begin with. In any case, I don't want to have to personally find out. Right? Do you? Like, I don't want to end up experiencing that firsthand. Instead, I'd want to trust his instruction and rely, and rely on his grace and direction to rescue me from this situation. And we see that hope in verse 7. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, 
I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I think it's really interesting that he uses the word conquer there. Like, I think conquering is to say that it's not easy. It's not without work. It's a, it's a literal spiritual battle. And Jesus doesn't say to the, one, to the one who cruise controls and just gets by or to the one who managed to feel like trying every day. He doesn't attach it even completely to emotion. He says, to the one who conquers. And I think that's, a, that's an uphill battle through droughts and storms. Many of us know. Through depression, poverty, addiction, laziness, loneliness, anger, resentment, self-righteousness, gossip, greed, lust, pride, it's, the list is unending. And it's an against all odds kind of warfare. But to conquer is to follow Jesus for your whole life. And it, and it is not easy, but it is necessary. Why? Because in verse 7, to eat of the tree of life, to be in the paradise of God, right? To be free from sin and worshiping God for eternity, we need to conquer. And if we don't conquer, the result is not paradise, is not the paradise of God, it's, it's the pain and the permanence of hell. And I, I hate to sound like a pessimist this morning, but we can't conquer the way God requires with human energy. We are imperfect. Instead, to conquer the world, to be made right with God, and to be indwelled with his spirit, and to endure, we need Christ. And in Christ, he will sustain us to the end. And that's why Romans 8 teaches and promises us that those who believe in Christ, we are, we are already what? We're already conquerors. Yeah, he's sealed our fate in the book of life, and that's great hope for us this morning. And so to bring it back, bring it back, regardless of our relationship today with Jesus, he will be the one to hold us accountable and seal our fate. So while, while many know him as, as friend and savior, let's also keep in mind that he is as much judge and fate sealer as those other things. He's the most high God. Will you revere him this year? Next point on your guide. Will you love Jesus? Will you love Jesus? So we need to make the case for love this morning. Why, why can't we abandon it? And in doing so, I want to start by recognizing good things that Jesus acknowledges as useful but not ultimate. Things that many of us many of us in this room can identify with. And so we know from the book of Ephesians and from this account in Revelation that one thing this church did have was doctrinal vigilance. Like that, that means they would have had to have read scripture and been, been made confident in it. And, and in doctrine, they would have studied it to have tested, uh, they would have had to have tested uh, the, their doctrine against uh, people from within the church and outside the church, reasoning about it. They would have had to have had passion for it, that, that these truths cannot be compromised on, that this is God's literal eternal word, and it cannot be manipulated to say something it's not saying. And this church in Ephesus also apparently had toil and patient endurance. Maybe they were hard workers and self-sufficient, not a parasite on society, though despite their likely decent conduct, they were still attacked for their faith. When they were challenged, they defended the gospel, though, and they stood strong in persecution. Not 
to mention, on top of it all, they did not grow weary, according to this passage. They, they were able to look at their lives that they had built and say, this isn't totally unbearable and it seems obedient and we could continue like this until we die. And again, none of this was egregious, heinous behavior. I think it was reasonably good. However, Jesus does not consider even these marks of maturity as replacements for your first love. They can't replace your first love. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Oftentimes when, uh, when we talk about first loves, uh, people think about someone in high school or middle school or elementary school if you were a little jumpy. And, uh, and they think about that boy or that girl that they had that first thing with. And I know thing, thing is vague, it's vague language, but it's still what the kids are using these days. So I was thinking back on some of my first loves, and believe it or not, there was, there was this one that stood out in my mind more than others. And my first love was this Swedish, sort of boxy-shaped, clunky station wagon. In this case, not a girl, it was a car. But this wasn't any, this wasn't any ordinary car, this was my first car. And it was a Venetian red pearl Volvo V70R. And it had an Alcantara leather interior with diamond stitching in the seats. And, and very unfortunately for my obnoxious musical taste, it had a super bumping stereo system. Um, but last but not least, it, under the hood, it had this five-cylinder, yes, five cylinders, 2.3-liter engine with a sizable turbo on top of it all. Like, this thing was just a monster of a station wagon, and I loved it. And, if, and you know if you've ever gotten a new car, even if, even if it was used like mine, those first few months, you're like vacuuming the interior every weekend and like new car fresheners, car washes on the regular, and you're spraying tire grease afterwards to make it shine, and you park it 25 spaces away from other cars. You don't want it to get scratched. I was crazy about being my car. I, I volunteered to be the driver for every occasion just so I could be with my first car. I think I averaged a tank of gas in like two and a half days. That's, that's not efficient, in case you're wondering. I wasn't always efficient with my Volvo, but it was special to me, and I was excited to get in and drive it every day. But eventually, because it was my familiar car, I, I had to keep driving it to get me places. But I stopped making it shine in car washes and with the tire grease spray. And eventually there was a McDonald's french fry that made its way underneath the seat and never got vacuumed up and probably never went bad either. <laughs> and uh, and the, car, the car simply became the familiar kind of just default indifferent reality that this was the thing that was going to get me from point A to point B. And now I tried to minimize how much time I had to spend in my car. Like it, wasn't, it wasn't so much about the car anymore as much as what it allowed me uh, to participate in and where it was taking me. And look, of course, it's perfectly okay to treat your car like that. But it is not okay to treat Jesus like our used car. And I believe this is the sort of caution coming from this passage for us as Christians this morning. When it's not so much about the Savior anymore or being with him as much as it is about, well, he's going to take me to heaven one day, point A to point B. And in the meantime, I guess there's some cool things I can do, participate in church activities. That seems right to do every once in a while when I can stand it. 
serve on the worship team or greet people at first impressions or just be a regular attender at a church, but I think, I think I'm okay with keeping it mechanical, and I, I, don't, I don't think I can afford to, to give my whole heart to this anymore, to him or to them. Not, I don't know if I care that much anymore as, as long as I have my ticket. And if this is your frame of mind this morning, and listen, left to ourselves in our nature, this is where we would all be taken. If this is you or me, hear Jesus this morning. He says, don't abandon your first love. Don't abandon your first love. And so let me ask you, do you remember what it was like when you first came to know Jesus, when you knew you were saved? Or just a life moment when you were vividly reminded about how fortunate you were to receive his unending grace. Not because of anything you did, but because of everything he did. You knew that without him, no matter how hard you tried, you'd, you never would have true peace. You'd never be satisfied. You'd never know God. Yet because of his grace, you came to know him with a certain fullness and you were filled with satisfaction and peace and rest. And think of a moment when you said, you know what, God? <clears throat> I really... I really need you right now. I'm not okay. I just look at how sin wrecks me and my family and my friends. This world has no eternal treasures for me. It means nothing to me if I don't have you. And seriously, I need you. I want you. And so I'll, I'll carry my cross in your footsteps and I'll go do what you ask. Anything for you and for your people and for your kingdom because you've done everything for me and my church and my destiny. Jesus, you're not my excuse for licentiousness. You're the essence of my life. You're living in me and through me. We are one. I love you. Your love is my first love. The same author of Revelation says in 1 John 4.19, By this we know love. We love because he loved us first. And this is exactly where Jesus is calling us to, to remember where we came from and, and engender this sort of humbling and surrendering of ourselves to his grace and his purposes above all, no matter what. So will you love Jesus this year? Last point, last heart check. Will you love each other? Will you love each other? 1 John 4.20 says... If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Let me make this clear. We cannot love God without also loving each other. Because if we don't love each other out of the outflow of the love God has shown us, we're saying we don't have the love of God in us. There is an eternal and inseparable connection between sacrificial love for the body, for the church, for people, and authentic relationship with God. Jesus teaches the fruit of our faith must include demonstrable love for our brothers and sisters. And before, and before we lose focus to possibly judge others in this moment, can I ask you and, and me too to take a moment and resist thinking about how others might be doing with this heart check. Like, they, they matter, but, but you and me need to grapple with this. Are you loving? Are you loving your church family and your natural family? 
Are you loving your coworkers and your classmates? Are you loving your enemies? Jesus calls us even to love our enemies. You might say, well, who would actually do that? Well, Jesus would. Jesus would. Right? We were all children of wrath, enemies of the things of God, and yet because of his great love for us, he was willing to make himself humanity's punching bag. And we killed him the way we were supposed to die. We should have been the ones to die choking on God's cup of wrath. But instead, he lived perfectly and died to pay the penalty for our sins, and he defeated death so that by faith in his resurrected life, he would substitute his spotless track record for ours. New life on earth and with him in heaven. Like, praise Jesus. Praise Jesus for that. He saw us. He pursued us. He presented us with hope. And he gave us the right to become children of the most high God. How is that for love this morning? How's that for love? And guess what? This is the same love we should be loving each other with. This is agape love. God's love for us. Literally, in verse 4 uh, of our passage, when he says, you've abandoned the love, uh, love is agapen. That's agape love. In Ephesians 1.15, concerning the love they once have, that's also agape love. In 1 Corinthians 13, the, the chapter immediately after the reference I gave you uh, in your guides about the body, right? We all know it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast. That's also agape love. Like that... That chapter has nothing to do with weddings, though married people should definitely depend on that for their marriage. But 1 Corinthians 13 is all about the love we demonstrate to each other in the body. And so will you love each other? And just consider the, the joy that would well up in your heart as God grows you and teaches you to love like he does. And the message that it would send to a very needy world to see an entire body of believers, a church, to be forgiving and bearing with one another and encouraging and challenging and loving each other in this way. Like the world couldn't help but see like these people have been with Jesus. These people know Jesus. It's the greatest witness we can offer and it requires the collective. We need each other. So in response, we're closing out here. Wherever you are this morning, take a moment and consider verse 5 from our main passage this morning. It says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So let's personally respond. One, remember where you came from. Remember where you came from. I think that is, consider what it was like to once have been an enemy of God and now to have received the gift of salvation and faith and remember the sort of gratitude and love and servant-heartedness that produced and the places you were willing to go for Jesus and the body. Second, repent from your sin and turn towards Jesus. Repent and turn. We, we are tempted to treat Jesus like a ride from point A to point B. Let's ask him for forgiveness on that. And just remember, he's still, he's still our judge, and he, he deserves reverence. But by his spirit, we can turn from our sin and fix our eyes on him as Savior, and he will meet us wherever we are and take us to holy places only he can deliver. And lastly, redo 
Redo the works you once did. Redo the works you once did. I would say, go, go and do that which you know you've been designed and appointed to do. And if you've never asked how you can serve, you can ask around today. And if you've never asked someone to lunch or to dinner or to breakfast to get to know them better, you can ask someone today. If you want to read more diligently, pray more consistently, and start making small sacrifices of your time for others, you can grab someone here and ask them and, and, and brainstorm what it could look like to do those things even for an hour every two weeks. And those small commitments, those small commitments will begin to ripple through your life and give momentum to the other disciplines in your life. I promise. I promise that's the case. With Christ's love at the center, commit to your church and to their best, carry out your duty, and be lights to the world. That's our calling. What would it look like if we did this together this year? So remember, repent, redo. If you're here this morning and uh, you've heard the hope of new life and victory in Christ and you've never responded and you want to know more about what it looks like to follow Jesus, there are people here who would love to walk along, alongside you uh, with that, a pastor or elder or anyone you see up here on stage or a trusted friend uh, in the congregation. Don't, don't suppress what God is doing in your heart and in your life. Take someone and let them know. I'm going to invite the worship team back up and we'll close together uh, in prayer. Let's pray. God, we sang about it this morning. Creation proclaims it and your scripture does too. You are the most high God. You are the creator of the universe and of us. You're the author of salvation. God, you are so great. Lord, I even, I even want to resist the temptation of just going through mechanics and even just praying now simply because it's a transition we're used to going from sermon to music. But God, I want to recognize that we are praying because we believe that only you can accomplish what you require, God, from us in our lives. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would continue to lavish your grace on us, that we would turn our eyes towards you and run towards you, and, and that because of a will and an agape love that you're welling up in our hearts, we would be willing to do whatever you ask. God, would that be something we start praying for today? I pray that you would continue to draw us close to one another in the body, that we would see uh, our identity in Christ's love as number one and something we are unwilling to abandon, unwilling to be shaken off of. God, you deserve all praise and worship and glory from our lives this morning and forevermore. Praise in your name. Amen.